Hey everyone, welcome back to Staying Connected. This is Katie, your host, and today we're going to talk to Heather, who is diagnosed with vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, or VEDS. Hey, Heather. Hey, Katie, and hey guys who are listening. Thanks so much for having me on today. Yeah, thanks for agreeing to do this. Yeah. I can't wait to hear more about your story. Well, I so appreciate um, just the work that you're doing in general and just getting these stories out because one of the things that um, you know that, that really hit me hard after the diagnosis was I don't know anyone who has this and I don't know anyone who has gone through these same things. And you know, vascular EDS manifests differently in every patient, but I mean, just to hear different people and how their stories have evolved and how they've kind of walked through this is incredibly helpful for me and I know it is for our vets community. So thank you so much for for what you're doing with staying connected. Oh yeah, thank you. That's why that's why I started doing it. <laughs> so how are you diagnosed with beds? Um, so my diagnosis came after a slew of uh, major medical events that happened in the fall of 2015. Um, and, and in reality, you know, with, with many of us who have beds, I mean, there were, there were warning signs that happened much before then and even major medical events before then. But the, the, that fall of 2015 was the, the time when, then when my doctors really said, okay, something is going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'd had, uh, I guess, let's see, in July of 2015, I found out that, that I was pregnant, which was a total shock because we, we have, my husband and I have one son together. He, he'll be 13 in November. And we didn't think that we could have any more children. And, and uh, he came with a little bit of help with fertility and, um, you know, was a, that was a challenge in itself. And so we were really shocked to find out that I was pregnant. Um, and then we went to the doctor for the first ultrasound appointment and there was no heartbeat. And so she said that, you know, I'd likely, um, that the baby had died early on, maybe five or six weeks, but my body had not recognized it yet. And so I had not yet started to miscarry. I was at nine weeks then. Wow. And so, yeah, yeah. And so uh, she said, uh, she said, you could, you have two options. You can, we can take care of it with and do a DNC procedure here in, in the office, or you can go home and, and see if you, your body will kick in and do it naturally. And um, I'm, 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 pretty, pretty big hippie. So I was like, I, I think I can do this on my own. <laughs> and I, I didn't, I didn't do natural childbirth with my son. I had a C-section. That, that's another bad story um, mm-hmm. before all of this happened. But, uh, but anyway, so I said, yeah, okay. I really don't want the, the medical procedures, medical procedures already kind of freaked me out. And, and so I said, let me, let me do this on my own. And so, so I did. So at 14 weeks, my body started miscarrying and that was, you know, in hindsight, it was, that was a really traumatic uh, process because it took about six weeks for my body to fully clear um, all the tissue and, and everything. It was, you know, the, the bulk of it happened in one day, but then it just, it just took a really long process for everything to get completely out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I don't necessarily recommend that for everyone, but I think, you know, my husband and I both agree and we'll never know, but that it probably was still better for me than having a medical procedure requiring tools and doctors that had no idea that I had vascular EDS at the time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're, we're thankful for that. But, um, but then, then after the miscarriage, I started having this, you know, just this roller coaster of major medical events. Um, and the doctors think that the miscarriage kind of sent my body into a bit of, um, 
a, a bit of an, I can't remember the wording that they use, but a bit of an emergency kind of a flare, you know, a huge flare yeah. um, with my connective tissues. And so about a month after uh, the miscarriage was complete, um, I had a lot of uh, kidney pain and um, abdomen pain. And so I went in and uh, they said, oh, you're just dehydrated and you've just had a miscarriage and you probably have a kidney infection. And so I stayed in the ER for um, for a couple of hours and they gave me fluids and, and then really couldn't find anything with their basic tests. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they sent me home and I was feeling better by, you know, by having fluids and I, I was feeling better. Um, well, then I, I came back, I ended up having more intense pain and um, came back and come to find out that I was having a kidney infarction. So I, I had two aneurysms that were flaring up, my mesentery aneurysm, uh, a mesentery aneurysm and a renal aneurysm and both of those were kind of freaking out and so that renal uh, flare that renal artery was cutting off the blood supply to my kidney so, so that's, what's an, that's what an infarction is Yes, okay. and, and, and the way, and I, I'm telling you this because I'm obviously, I, I don't know anything about medicine. <laughs> I'm just spitting back out what my doctors have told me and I was trying to absorb. But the way that the nurse so patiently described it to me was, okay, a, a, an infarction is kind of like when you have um, a heart attack, they call that a myocardial infarction. And so, because it's cutting off blood supply to your heart. So same okay. thing with your kidney. That, you know, that aneurysm in my renal artery was blocking the blood flow into my right kidney. And so it was cutting off the blood supply. And so I lost about 10% of my kidney tissue. And that wow. is called a kidney infarction. And I will tell you that if you have an eight-year-old son at home and you come home and tell him that you have a kidney infarction, the only word that he is going to hear is fart. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, it was just a little bit of, you know, levity that we needed, mm-hmm. but he just, I mean, he, every time we said that word, he would just start laughing and gosh, we need, we need laughter. So yeah, so we had the kidney infarction and then I had this really fantastic doctor that was on call in the ER and, you know, he was just really determined to not take no for an answer. And I think that he recognized, um, you know, that this, this, you know, when you hear vascular EDS, uh, you know, think, what is it they say? Think, um, uh, uh, what, is, what is the zebra thing? Think uh, something not, not hoofbeats? What do oh, they say? Yeah. What do we say? When you hear a hoofbeat, <laughs> don't think of a horse. Like when they're taught in medical school, they're taught that when they hear hoofbeats, don't think of a zebra, think of a horse because it's the most common thing that's going to be. Right. And I think he was one of those doctors that was really committed to thinking, you know what, this is this is not a kidney infection. Um, something really odd is going on here with this patient and I'm pretty determined to figure it out and and ultimately he he didn't figure it out but he did send us on the right path that started that um and so he you know took me through every medical test in the book to figure out why I was having all of this pain and um and they you know they put me in a wing in the hospital that was uh it was almost like a um like a a ghost town because they didn't know where to stick me because they didn't really know what was going on. They just knew this girl's in a lot of pain and she's lost 10% of her kidney tissue and something's going on here. And she's had these, you know, aneurysm flare ups. And so, you know, I I spent a a couple days to kind of get in the hospital to get over the pain and go through every medical test that they could. Mm -hmm. And ultimately he said, okay, I'm going to give you a, uh, he assigned me a rheumatologist, a local rheumatologist who is familiar with um, a, a condition called vasculitis. 
And so that's what I was initially diagnosed with. And vasculitis is an inflammation, um, an infection in your vascular tissues. It's kind of, it's an autoimmune thing. Okay. And so um, that's, that's what they thought that I had. And so he came in and, and he was looking at my medical history, which up until that point had included what I've just discussed. And then it also included um, a perforated colon in 2010. Um, which sent me into septic shock, and I had a temporary ileostomy put in, and then they removed that a few months later. So he's looking at, you know, my fall of 2015, all these events that are happening, and then, okay, five years prior, her colon ruptured, and then four years prior to that, in 2006, my son was born prematurely. He was born six weeks early, um, not because I ever went into labor, but because my membranes ruptured early. Mm-hmm. And when I had the C-section, um, they had, uh, had had to have a C-section because my body never kicked into labor, even though they kept forcing me, uh, pumping me with Pitocin to kind of speed up the labor. My body was like, yeah, we're not ready for labor yet. Um, <laughs> the rest of my body wasn't. My womb was like, yeah, I'm not holding this baby anymore. Yeah. Um, so, so, and when I had the C-section, they had... Um, I remember laying on the table, kind of being awake. They had taken Thomas out, and I remember the nurse kind of chiding my doctor and saying, are, are, can, can you close this up? And joking with him because he, and then he said, well, I, I, I'm having a hard time. Her tissues are, are really slippery. Mm. And I remember that being such an odd statement then, and I was so out of it on all the anesthesia drugs. But, but still, I remember thinking, gosh, that's kind of odd. And so he acknowledged even mid-surgery that he was having a really hard time putting me back together and um, ended up losing a lot of blood and had the blood transfusion and just that, that whole, the, the delivery was, was unique and a lot of women have crazy delivery stories. So I just thought I was just one of those women that had a crazy delivery story. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so my doctor, okay, so fast forward back to this rheumatologist who thinks that I have vasculitis mm-hmm. in, in 2015. He's putting together those pieces along with the fact that my mom, who uh, passed away at the age of 37, um, she had a splenic artery aneurysm that was seemed to be completely unprompted by anything else. And so he's thinking, okay, something's going on here. And so he says she has vasculitis. It's an autoimmune inflammation of your vascular tissues. And so he starts um, a, a program to put it in remission. He says, there's no cure, but we can put it in remission. And so I'm in the hospital, and they start uh, me on a, a, a really uh, aggressive round of steroid treatment um, along with Cipro, um, antibiotic, um, and then chemotherapy. Oh and so right, <laughs> and I'm looking back at that, and I'm just like, that is just, crazy that I survived because those uh, those three things together are like a suicide pill for someone with vascular EDS. I mean, from what I understand. Um, so, you know, Cipro is, what is it, the, the Leviquins or whatever that that class oh, of yeah, antibiotics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, thank you. Fluoroquinolones. Um, that, that is, you know, not really safe for us to take. And then mm-hmm. steroids, which, you know, ramped my blood pressure up. And then, of course, chemo, which just weakens your entire body. Um, so those three things together, you know, we were like, okay, we, we're going we're gonna to kick this thing in, in the tuchus. And uh, as we thought, we were doing the right thing. And I, I really do. I, I hold no animosity towards uh, either one of those doctors, the ER doctor and the rheumatologist, because they both were just so committed to not accepting the status quo. Um, and I think that they, you know, really thought with the information they had at the time that 
they were they were doing the best that they could you know and i think that it's it's really easy for those of us in um in the vets community to to be angry with doctors and to feel like um you know they they don't know and and they don't know because they don't know you know i think we're we're living in this in this season of awareness about our disorder where it's not like cancer where there's been years and years and years and years of research being done on it. I mean, we're, we're kind of in the beginning stages of that. And mm-hmm. I'm so thankful for the work of the Vets Collaborative and the doctors involved in that. And, you know, as we kind of build more research, but, you know, it would be really easy to go back and, and tell that rheumatologist, you know what, you really messed up. But, but he, <laughs> I really think, <laughs> really, really, you almost killed me. Um, but, but I think that he really was doing, I really... I liked him as a doctor. I felt like he was attentive and um, he, he was, was paying trying. attention to me. He was trying. Yeah, he was trying. He just he didn't, didn't nail it, but he was trying. Yeah. Um, and so so I went through that first, uh, first round of chemo, and I was supposed to come back in a month, and I was going to do six months of chemo. Um, but before the next month was up, my, um, my left carotid artery ruptured. And, and you and I were chatting about this a few minutes yesterday, but... I say ruptured. Those of us in the vets community will recognize this as a, not as a rupture, but a carotid cavernous fistula. That's mm-hmm. the fancy name for it. But when you say that, most people don't understand what it means. Yeah. And so, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I, I just, when I, when I, you know, am I talking about it to, to someone who, who might not know that, then I just say my carotid artery ruptured. And um, I was a yoga teacher at the time. And I was assisting my yoga teacher in a class, a big class of hers that she was teaching. And I had squatted down. And I remember feeling that day, you know, that um, I just I just felt really off. And the steroids in general were just, have you ever been on steroids? Yeah. Okay. So they make you crazy. And <laughs> like they really, they really do. Yeah. Like they made me crazy. And I, I was, I was like super one. L- listen, that was, okay, that was in the fall. And my son wanted to be... Let's see. He was eight at the time, and he wanted to be toothless um, from the the. Um, How to train your dragon. Yes, he wanted to be toothless for Halloween, and I kid you not. At noon, I went to Walmart, and uh, on Halloween, I went to Walmart at noon and bought a sewing machine and all the materials I would need for to make this homemade toothless costume. And by five o'clock that night, he had a homemade toothless costume. Oh I, I was a crazy woman. And I remember my husband, and that, that's not me at all. Like, I've never been super you know, driven with energy, you know, in any shape or form. And my husband was like, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, I think that was just the effect of the steroids making me kind of, you know, in hyperdrive and everything. And, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I remember feeling that morning in my carotid rupture, you know, that I just, I felt I just felt like I couldn't settle down and my heart was beating and um, like I already, already felt really off that morning. And so, you know, we I show up to the studio and we're in class and, you know, I, I squatted down to, um, to place my hands on top of someone else's hands to assist them in a particular pose. And when I stood up, I felt something pop in my left ear, what, what felt like my left ear. Mm-hmm. And I'd already had, you know, some um, migraine symptoms kind of going on. I struggled with migraines my entire life. And now we know it's probably related to the weird blood flow in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so I excused myself to the back of the studio. And um, I immediately started hearing that classic whoosh in your ear that you that you hear with the uh, 
carotid fistula. Yeah. Um, and so in, in time with my heartbeat. So, you know, heart would beat and I would hear just this, this whoosh going on in my ear. And, and at first I thought, I, you know, ruptured an eardrum or something. Um, and then as, as the time went on, I, I realized, this, I don't think this is good. I think something is really wrong here. You, know, you just have that sense of, of doom. Yeah. Um, and so... Uh, I drove myself to the hospital, which I don't recommend. People do not be like me. Um, but I think in, I mean, really don't do that. Uh, but I, I think in the moment, it was just, it was an awareness of, well, I, I can drive. And I was really awake and, and, and present in the moment. And I needed to get to the hospital fast. And I didn't want to wait or call or, and here's another thing disturb or burden someone because uh -huh. why do, why do we do this to ourselves um i didn't want to to burden or you know disturb the the my teacher and the students in the class when what i should have said was you know what can someone drive me to the hospital or can someone call 911 for me mm -hmm. um but at the moment i still wasn't fully aware of what the the weight of what we were dealing with and so we get to the hospital and they you know they run tests and and meanwhile my uh, you know my my sinus cavity and my left eye is filling up with blood because my carotid had ruptured. And so I was, it was starting to swell and I couldn't see out of that eye. And, um, you know, they, they were really having a hard time trying to figure out again, what to do with me. And so they said, we're going to send you to two of the, the more teaching, um, the more, more equipped hospitals in the area. And the hospital that, that I was at is a trauma hospital, but they still uh, were sending me to a, a better one. They sent me, I'm in central North Carolina, and so they sent me to UNC. And by the time I arrived, it was early in the morning, and the doctor that was on call there was a doctor from Europe. She was from Paris. And I consider this such a blessing um, because she recognized vascular EDS immediately where no other doctor had seen it at all. Yeah. And so she, uh, she felt my skin. She looked at my medical history. She asked me about my mom's history. She checked the hypermobility hyper in my small joints. Um, and she said, I, I think you have, she called it collagenosis. And she said, I think this is what you have, and when we're done, I want you to get genetic testing, but we have to get through this procedure first. And so she went through the embolization procedure um, to basically create a, a, a man-made um, dam and block off uh, you know, the flow of my carotid artery, and it was crazy, crazy, here. and this is why I consider this such a blessing that she was aware of it, because that procedure is pretty dangerous yeah. for someone with vascular EDS, because you know, how they, they do it is they go, they enter through your femoral artery and go snake, you know, coil all the way up and they place, I mean, I, I can't remember how many, how many, uh, like the weight of the amount of platinum coil that I have in my head at the moment, but it, it's a lot. And so they snake all of that up through your femoral artery all the way into your sinus cavity. And so the procedure itself is really, really uh, uh, tenuous, I guess might yeah. be the, wrong, the right word. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but it was risky and but she knew it and so she you know she recognized because she recognized vascular EDS she knew to be really really careful and so she did and so they actually did the procedure in this the full surgery in two procedures because my femoral artery started shutting down during the first one mm -hmm. and um and so she backed out and sent me home for three days which was the longest three days of my life um because you just it, it wasn't complete and there was still the whooshing and so much pain and that I didn't even think I was going to make it to the second surgery. Yeah. Um, but I, but I did. And 
she finished this, finished the surgery and, um, which was a success. And then that was November of 2015. And then in December I had an appointment with the genetics department at UNC and they did the blood test and the test results came back. Um, in January, and that was when it was officially confirmed that I did have vascular EDS with a CAL3A1 genetic mutation that I had inherited from my mom, and she had a spontaneous mutation. So hers was not, uh, she didn't, my, my grandparents lived along and, and full lives, both of them, and so uh, they, they reasoned that her mutation was spontaneous and that I inherited it from her. How old were you at this time? I was 39, I was 38 when, yeah, yes, I was 38 when, when everything kind of started hitting the fan in the fall of 2015, and then I turned 39 in March of 2016, so between my 39th and, or 38th and 39th birthday. So when they told you, what did they tell you about what it meant for your life? It's lots of things. That's a great question. Um, so... I met with some doctors who were pretty much doomsday, and they, and I think, I'm trying to remember which, where, what division they were from, I think they were from the genetics department, um, and, you know, they were like, no, no more kids, which at this point, we were like, well, duh, but, uh, <laughs> uh, we're not, not really going through anything that's going to take us medically, um, traumatic at all anymore, so, but, no more kids, um, you know, no, they said, you know, um, contact sports, you know, no, uh, you have to be aware when you're going into surgery going forward that, you know, you are fragile and, and, you know, you, surgery will be very, very risky for you. Medical procedures will be risky for you. So we're not going to do anything surgically unless it's life threatening. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I had some that delivered, um, just the really doomsday part of it and to say, you know, there is no cure. Um, I, I mean, I remember sitting with our geneticist and, and when we got the diagnosis and, and, and so we said, great, this is, you know, 2016 and medicine has advanced to, you know, leaps and bounds. What treatments do I pursue? What medicines do I take? And I remember, I'll never forget the look in his eyes when, you know, he just, he was very kind and very compassionate and he just skipped a, a tiny bit of a beat and then he said there is no cure or treatment for vascular EDS and he said the thing that I can tell you is to prepare your bucket list and live your life well because your average life expectancy is 48. Wow. And so I got yeah and so I got that doomsday message but then the doctor from Paris and that these are the you know this this is what I cling to most she said you know you can live a normal life you just have to have some limitations now and you have to be aware of your limitations but you can live and have a very full life and then the other there was another set of doctors that came in and to be honest with you Katie I'm not even sure what their role was I think they were just doing rounds after my after my uh, surgeries just to check in on things but I remember really struggling with anxiety in the hospital and wondering how in the world I was going to manage that and and I and it was probably a, a blessing because in, in the hospital before you know I was discharged I, I had a couple of weeks where the whole vascular EDS thing really wasn't real until the diagnosis came in like we knew like that's where this was leading but I, I wouldn't let my mind go there because I was still very much in, in recovery mode from from my you know my carotid surgery procedures and that was a lot uh, to manage and so I, I think 
you know, my body just kind of protected itself and, and, and my mind before I really launched into processing what this diagnosis meant. Yeah. Um, but even just dealing with the anxiety of it in the hospital before I was discharged, these two doctors came in to do their rounds and they were just, they were so gracious and they said, you know what, you, you need to start small and don't tackle everything. Um, and, uh, you know, take melatonin, you know, get, you know, you need good sleeps over the next three months. Just take melatonin every single night mm -hmm. um, because that's going to help you get rest and that's going to help your body and your mind fight the anxiety and heal. Um, and they said, you know, take things in small baby steps. And they're like, you're not going to get rid of anxiety every day. So, you know, I want you to consider one small thing that you can do in every day that will help you with that. Mm -hmm. Um they, they were just, I don't know, they were really empathetic. I was really blessed with, with a team of, of doctors that had a lot of, of good empathy and uh, great bedside manner and uh, really helpful in kind of helping me manage the, the offshoots of, <laughs> um, of what had actually happened. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. That's, so it was November that you were in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And then December you saw the geneticist. Mm-hmm. And then January, you got your results? January. Mm -hmm. January, yeah. Yeah, January. March was my birthday. So, yeah, they, they called in January, and they delivered the news over the phone. And we, we kind of knew, you know, that especially given my mom's medical history, which, you know, she, she died in 1988. So back then, I mean, this was on nobody's radar. And it was just this big, giant unknown for her and for our family. And so it was a bit of a blessing to have the diagnosis to wrap some closure around her experience mm -hmm. um, and what had happened because, you know, there were talks of medical negligence and, you know, did, did the doctors do something wrong and, uh, you know, what in the world happened because she was so healthy one day and gone the next. And, um, you know, so it gave my family some closure to say, oh, this is, this is what happened. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that, that uh, the, the call with the geneticist was difficult and, but like I said, we, you know, we, we kind of knew that this is where it was leading. Mm -hmm. And then the next three months after that diagnosis were, were pretty dark for me emotionally. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it takes time to, to grieve and process a diagnosis like that. And it does. Yeah. And that, that was, that was, that was hard. So did anybody else in your family inherit this? Um, not that we're aware of. So my, I have, uh, my family history is kind of all over the place, but I have, I have lots of, of wonderful stepbrothers. I have one biological half brother. Um, and so we, uh, we share the same mom and that's, okay. that's it. It was just him and me that, that she had. And he's six years younger than me. And he has had his share of, uh, of some medical issues, but none of which they think is related to vascular EDS. And, um, yeah, he's, he's, his doctors are aware of it, but they, they don't think that he has it. He has, he has a daughter, um, too. So, but they're, they're not as concerned for him. Okay. Um, so, and then my son, who is 12, we had him tested this summer because he plays hockey and he was moving into a checking division this fall. So lots of contact happening for him in the sports field. Um, and, you know, we just wanted to be really wise with that. And he, he had not shown any, any symptoms, uh, you know, early manifestations of it 
as he was growing up, but we just wanted to be sure, and so we had him tested, and, and he, he does not have vascular Ehlers-Danlos. We are very, very thankful that this ends with me. That is and it doesn't news. skip generations. Yeah, it is. It is. It's really, really, really wonderful news. Wonderful news. That's awesome. So if, um, so if you were talking to somebody who is either going through potentially having vets and awaiting mm-hmm. a diagnosis or who just got their diagnosis, what kind of advice would you give them? Mm. Um, so going through the diagnosis process, number one, I think that you have to be your own advocate and you have to be willing to educate yourself. Um, and Dr. Google is not the answer. So it, Dr. Google will freak you out. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, I understand the desire to, you know, to search and to, to glean information, but I wouldn't necessarily rely on a Google search to get you there. Um, I would connect with someone in the vascular EDS community or uh, a, a genetics, you know, doctor to give you materials, you know, from the NIH or, you know, something that's a little bit more substantial to understand the disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I am definitely, uh, you know, my, my geneticist discussed this with me before we did my, my test and he said, you know, some people are, they like more information is power and some people more information is crippling and I am very much an information is power type of person and so you know I would ask someone who is walking through the diagnosis which type of of, of person you are um, because you know what one of the things that he wanted to make sure that I understood was if I got the diagnosis there still was nothing that we could do you know, I mean, I think to me, awareness is everything. And I think that that is going, you know, has the potential to save my life if I have a future medical, uh, major medical event. Um, but, you know, he said there are some that would, you know, some types of personalities that would receive that type of information. And, um, you know, it, it would it would really be challenging to move past the what if. Um, and that, you know, some people would live their life better just not knowing. If there's nothing you can do about it, don't know. I, I, I disagree. I'm definitely in the camp of, I think, more information and more awareness is knowledge and power and life-saving. And so for, if, if you're that type of person, then I think, you know, equip yourself with information so that you can be your own advocate. Um, get connected with, um, you know, support groups and organizations that are advocating for vascular EDS issues because they are unique. And I think that they manifest themselves very differently um, from patient to patient. You've probably already observed that just interviewing some of our stories and how different they are um, and, you know, different in, and the, the comorbidities, you know, I, I don't have a whole lot of comorbidities associated with vascular EDS um, outside of, you know, migraines and I have fatigue and I have, you know, overall joint and body pain, particularly when uh, weather systems come in. I'm really sensitive to changes in barometric pressure. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm getting a little bit off track here, but I, I think that, um you know that, that knowledge knowledge is is a good thing. So equip yourself with with people who um, you know surround yourself with organizations. You know do do the research with organizations that are actually um, advocating for um, issues that are specific to vascular EDS. What I also would recommend that you do is to not assume that every type of uh, every symptom and manifestation of the collective Ehlers-Danlos syndromes will apply to you. Because that was one of the things that kind of um, 
kind of threw me into paralyzation mode in between or right after my diagnosis was, you know, I started looking at like, like let's say the Ehlers-Danlos Society and, you know, all, all the things, I mean, it's Ehlers-Danlos is such a nebulous disorder um, that, you know, it just can, can manifest in so many different ways. And just because patient A experienced this doesn't mean that you will also. Mm-hmm. And then that's why I say, you know, avoid Dr. Google because Dr. Google is going to tell you every possible thing that could go wrong. And you, you might have 90% of those things that go wrong, or you might have 10. Um, you know, so I guess, you know, do, do, do what works for your soul in managing the acquisition of, of knowledge mm-hmm. and that, you know, okay, too much knowledge is, is going to freak me out, but this amount of knowledge is going to make me feel like I'm in control and I can advocate for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have a, a solid conversation with your primary doctor because, I mean, that's, that's who manages my care and that's what I've heard over and over and over again from my geneticist is that, you know, they're you know, we have to have our specialists, our cardiologist, and you know, our vascular uh, surgeon, and you know, all those things. That if something does go wrong, but my primary doctor is the one that I communicate with and go through the most. And so, if you're not comfortable with your primary, get a primary that you're comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and find someone. Don't don't settle for the status quo. Find someone that you feel comfortable interacting with and who is comfortable asking questions. And this is one of the reasons why I love my primary because she will flat out tell you. I don't know anything about this, but she's not afraid to learn. Um, and so, you know, she will ask the questions and she'll have a conversation with my geneticist to, to educate herself. So, you know, get comfortable with a doctor that, um, you know, that, that you feel like will, will be on, on your team and don't, don't waste time on doctors that aren't. Yeah. Um, what are the things that I say? I mean, I, I think the anxiety piece of it for me is really big. And I think that that is, you know, outside of just educating and advocating for yourself and not not being afraid to ask your questions and always be the, ugh, I'm terrible with idioms, I always mess them up, um, but like the, what is it, the squeaky squeaky wheel the gets the grease? Squeaky, yeah. squeaky can't, okay, good, I did it right. Okay, <laughs> the, squeaky, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Like, don't, don't be afraid to be the squeaky wheel, um, but, you know, all, all of those things, for self-advocacy that are important, particularly in this day and age with our, uh, with the way our, in the U.S. at least, with the way our, our medicine, um, our medical care is set up, which is kind of nuts, but yeah. um, that's a whole other conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, but, but then the anxiety piece of it for me is, is really, really important um, because I think that that, I mean, for me personally, that was what I struggled with. And, and listen, I mean, I, I taught people how to live healthily in their bodies for a living. I mean, I, I taught people how to live stress-free as, as a yoga teacher. You know, that that's, most of my students came in because they needed help with anxiety. I had all these great tools to help them. Um, and, you know, I think that that was, that was something that kind of hit me in the face. It was totally unexpected. And I was, even, even though I had all these great tools, I really was ill-prepared to address it in my own body and mind. Um, and so, you know, some of those things that I would say looking back now um, are, you know, self-care has to be a priority. Mm-hmm. Um you know, with the anxiety piece of it, like that doctor said, start small. Don't, you know, anxiety for me kind of, it's like this big, uh, big ball that kind of rolls and gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And you really don't realize it's there until, um, the ball kind of explodes. Like that's, I don't know. That's, that's how I would articulate how it feels in my body. Yeah. 
Um, and, you know, so I, I think that, that start small, knowing that you're not going to tackle all of it at the same time, um, and recognizing that you're not alone. So many people deal with anxiety. And this type of diagnosis is, I mean, is not easy. And so cut yourself some slack and, and realize that what we are up against is really challenging. Um, I mean, it, it is, this is not, this is not a cakewalk at all. And it's okay to say, I am not okay. You know, it's okay to say, I'm really struggling here and I need help. Mm -hmm. And I'll be the first one to tell you that I see a therapist. I have anxiety medicine that I keep in my purse um, that I, you know, take when, when I need it, when I can't get those anxiety, those panic attack symptoms to settle down. Um, you know, I have a really strong village support group of friends and family members that I can call on. Um, you know, I, I have, uh, you know, I know, like, you know, if I'm getting ready to hit a panic attack, you know, I'm going to put my hands in hot water to kind of stop that response and settle my body down. Like, I, I think the approach to anxiety for me that I learned, that I that I had to learn during that season, uh, right after my diagnosis, when things were really dark, you know, is that that has to be a holistic job. You know, it's not, it has to be, start small, sure, but it has to be, you know, this, this giant, toolbox of things that you can pull from um, and I'm you know a very faithful person and, and prayer is certainly a, a part of that for me that brings me great peace um, you know so you know fill your toolbox with things that bring you peace um, and that work to help you manage that because when you know when you're full of anxiety you're not going to be able to advocate well for yourself um, because you know you're not going to think as clearly or feel as good, and I mean it just it ugh, anxiety is, is a hot mess. Um, but just you know be be really careful establishing that holistic thing. And I think that the other two things that I would say to someone who is either walking through this diagnosis or uh, or has it, um, I think that it has taught me two things, which I think are really valuable. Um, number one is that. I think this world has a lot to learn from people who have to say no to things. Um, and I go back to what, you know, my Parisian surgeon said, you know, you can live a normal life. You just have limitations. And I think that we live in a society and a culture that is always, yes, 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 do everything. You know, busy is so glorified in, in our culture. And I think that our culture has a lot to learn from those of us who, uh, where, where busyness is actually life-threatening. And so you know, there are a lot of things that I really want to do, but I have to be very strategic with my time management and I have to say yes to the things that are most important to me and no to the things that don't matter. And vascular EDS has taught me how to do that really well. Mm -hmm. um, it, it will teach you quickly how to prioritize your life, but I also think that that's the perspective that our culture needs. And so, you know, that, that, that's a good thing. Um, that we can give to our community and the world around us as a reminder that you know you you don't have to do it all and you can take a nap every day and that's okay and you know you limitations are are not um, a hindrance to living your life fully they are helping you live it sustainably mm -hmm. um, sustainable choices are huge for me and I'm always asking that question is this sustainable for me is this sustainable for my family um, and I think the other encouragement that that vascular EDS has taught me is, you know, is, is that bucket list. You know, it's, it's what my geneticist said, you know, prepare your bucket list and live your life well. And it really made me start thinking, well, what is my bucket list? And, you know, I, I used to think that bucket lists were, um, you know, something that we did when we retired, but 
but they're not. You know, it's really taught me how to live my life in the present moment and be, um, you know, really attentive to that. And that brings great joy. Um, and I think vascular EDS is, is awful and it's nasty and I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy and it is not a story that I wish that I had to carry. Um, it's not a story that I want for my life, but because it is, um, it has taught me to live my life with a, a perspective of gratitude for every single day that I have mm-hmm. um, and an intention of wanting to make the most out of every single day and memories with my family. Um, and that, I don't know, Katie, I think people search their entire lives for that kind of perspective. Um you know, and I, and I think that that is a bit of a blessing in disguise that we have, um, you know, because we, we don't take anything for granted. And that, in turn, makes for a really sweet and precious life most days. Some days I'm under the covers and I'm crying because I don't want to have this disease. I don't want to have this disorder. I'm not saying every day is picket fences and rainbows. And we still, it's an ongoing process. It's an ongoing grief process of how to manage it. Um, but most days, most days feel really, really sweet because I'm aware of how precious it is that I'm still here and kicking and alive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Yeah, it does give you that perspective and that, like, I mean, I before I was diagnosed, I would tell people because I had a big family mm. that like, I grew up with all my grandparents and some of my great-grandparents. Mm-hmm. And I saw them all pass away. Mm. And so I grew up with this mentality that you can't wait until retirement to do the things that you want to do. Right. And I would tell people that and they'd be like, oh, yeah, but, you know, I only have 10 years left until I, Mm. you know, get 30 years with the state or wherever. I'm like, but you can't count on that. Yeah. Like you can plan for it, but you can't put off everything you want to do until you get there. Because yeah. what if something happens? Like one of my grandparents passed away, I think it was like three months after he retired. Mm. And he had waited his whole life to do these things that he wanted oh. to do. Yeah. Yeah. He never got to do them. Yeah. You know, well, then you live with regret and like trying not to live with regret. Yeah. Is so important. It, it really is. And I think the, the reality, I think for us with vascular EDS, we're, we're aware of our mortality. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, here's the deal. Ain't none of us getting out of this life alive. You know, I mean, it, and I, I don't, I don't like to talk about that with people. Nobody wants to hear that or talk about it, but, mm-hmm. but that's, that's true. I mean, the only difference between us and someone who doesn't have vascular EDS is we probably know, you know, how we're leaving this world. Um, and, and it may happen sooner than we'd like it to. It might not. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it might not. Um, but in the meantime, what are we going to do with those days? Um, and I think, you know, like you said with your grandparents, my father-in-law passed away suddenly in March. And, I mean, he was healthy. I mean, healthy one day and, you know, heart attack the next. And just completely unexpected. Um, and so, you know, it, it really makes it easy for us to be spontaneous and to do things that don't always make sense. You know, I mean, prime example of that, last Monday, my my son uh, came home when he was in first grade and he said, Mom, I want to be a primatologist. I had to 
look up the dictionary and in the dictionary to see what that actually meant. <laughs> and a primatologist is someone who studies primates because he wanted to work with monkeys. And that's kind of been a childhood dream that he's had since then. Mm. Um, and so he really idolized Jane Goodall when he was young. He read an early reader about her and just really uh, looked up to her work. And is a she's such a tremendous role model for him since then. And we thought it would just, it would be a fleeting thing, but it hasn't. I mean, he's really hung on to it. And so a couple years ago, I, I met, set a reminder in my Google notes to, to check her event calendar and see if we could get to one of her events. And um, this summer she was coming to DC, which is close enough to where we are. And so on Monday we, we, he ditched school. We took him out of school, which is 100% worth it, and drove him up to D.C. so he could hear his childhood idol, mm -hmm. hear her story in person. You know, it's those kinds of things that we probably never would have done before my diagnosis. Yeah. But afterwards, that's a really easy decision. Um, you know, and then that kind of stuff is that that's what I mean by making, you know, it makes life really sweet because, you know, I got to watch him you know, watch his face while he listened to her. And it was such an incredible moment. That was a bucket list moment for him. And I got to make that happen for him. Yeah. Um, and that was, that was, that was pretty special. So we, we try to do stuff like that, you know, a lot. And it's not, it's not all big stuff either. I mean, it's, it's the little things. It's, mm -hmm. you know, making, uh, you know, dinner together and sitting down at the dinner table or, you know, uh, having a conversation with friends or ditching the to-do list in your work pile to know that, you know, your family needs you in this moment or, or something else that matters. You know, you mm -hmm. just, you become really good at, at saying, you know, this matters and this doesn't. And that's, that, that feels pretty empowering, especially living with something that feels pretty scary. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today and to everybody. You are more than welcome. Thanks so much for having me on and just sending gentle hugs to everybody that's listening and um, just such a privilege to root everybody along uh, together in this uh, life that we have with vascular EDS. Thank you, Heather. Thanks, Katie. And thank you, everybody, for listening. This was Staying Connected, and this was Heather. Um, I have episodes coming out on the last Sunday of every month, so stay tuned. Subscribe if you haven't yet. Share this podcast to help us raise awareness of vascular EDS, and we'll talk to you next month.